Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. How are you doing, Darcy? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, things are finally starting to warm up around here, which is nice. It has been so. crazy for those of you who are in Texas and some of those areas where it's yeah. just like deadly cold. We are with you. It is pretty cold where I am right now. I mean, it's heated up a little bit. It's now, I think, 30 degrees outside. But we've had the river outside is frozen. And... um mm. <laughs> I am bundled up. <laughs> I have like a yeah. bathrobe and a hat and a sweater and like the whole deal. Two pairs of pants, some lo- thermal long johns. <laughs> it is cold out there. So we feel you. Yeah. We're with you. Definitely sympathize with the folks out there that are dealing with the, the cold weather. Yeah. And I mean, they're dealing with a lot more than just cold weather. They, are, they don't have power. Some of them don't have water. I mean, it's, it's bad in Texas right now. So um, our thoughts are with you. And... Hopefully they get all of this worked out soon because it's getting real scary for people. That's what I've heard. So like you just, you're hearing horror stories. I don't know. Mike's family is all in Texas. They're in El Paso. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they're all doing okay and pulling through the cold. I can't imagine like having pets, pets and small children and stuff and having to like try to. I know. Just awful. And there's already, you know, enough stuff with COVID and whatnot to have to mm-hmm. deal with that on top of it. Um, yikes. Yeah. Um, I have been at the rental property for the last two days, like putting, filling in holes and priming walls and I yeah. am exhausted. <laughs> I bet. So I hate doing that stuff. It sucks. Well, like Mike and I have kind of made a deal. Like there's certain things that we're each going to be responsible for so that we don't have to pay somebody to do it because right. you know, it's expensive. And I know I still hate it though. I still hate doing it. No one had, we paid somebody to do our house. Cause it's like, you know, we're, we don't yeah. want to have it look half ass, but <laughs> we definitely are doing the rental property ourselves. just cause I've done it before. My dad was a painter. And so like, I have mm-hmm. some experience doing it. I mean, it doesn't look like I'm like a professional painter, but it definitely, it doesn't look bad. So right. Fingers crossed that it turns out okay. I started rolling on the primer and the paint started flaking off the underlying. <laughs> oh God. Like what we had done previously is taken like a chipping, um, scraping tool and scraped off all the obvious paint that was flaking off. Right. And then that was why we had to fill in holes because it went all the way down to the plaster below because whoever, oh whoever had painted previously had used it like an a water base on top of an oil base or an oil base on top of a water base. And it just, the paint just came flaked right off down to the plaster oh. or some moisture got in there or something. I don't know. It's, it's pretty bad. So we went into the hardware store and asked the, the paint specialist, like, what do we do with this? Do we have to just sand it all down to the plaster? And he said, no, mm. wet it. And then fill in the holes with like spackle. And then, then, oh, okay. So that's yeah. Better. And then wait for and... it to dry and sand it and prime it and um, paint it. So, oh, but when I started putting the primer on, any of the paint that we didn't flake off that was still underneath there started coming off onto the roller, and I was just like, oh my god, this is not happening. <laughs> oh, what a nightmare! I hate moving. I hate everything involved with moving. Yeah, and you know it's. Literally, you're walking through, and we have like a, a pretty nice slow, snowblower and all that kind of stuff for here. So we've done all of our pathways. So we went over to the other house, and since no one's really there, mm-hmm. all the pathways are just bad. So it was just like, mm-hmm. oh my god, I can't wait to be done with this, get a renter in there, and just not have to deal with it anymore because it's exhausting. Like, and there was still the mouse stuff from the mouse incident oh yeah because i hadn't cleaned it I, we just moved like so we just left it right we'd taken all the stuff out and just left the and they'd obviously been in there a little bit since we moved out and so i clean cleaned yeah. it all out and sanitized and sterilized everything it was so gross like i can't even like Ugh. below the kitchen sink was like i don't know if it was like the mouse bathroom or like <laughs> no 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 we got to move on. Can't, can't do it. Can't I was like, this. oh, nope. what nope. just nope. happened? And here I am like in a full hazmat suit. Because yeah. Ma- Mike yeah. got me like a hazmat suit to paint and sand and stuff. And so I wouldn't get my clothes all icky. And I had like full on rubber gloves. And I had like a mask. On. <laughs> I was like, I have to get in mm-hmm. here. I have to clean this out. Oh, no. Because 
Because nope. I don't want to spend the $100 to get somebody to come in and do it for us. Man. Because I'm cheap. I'm so not self-sufficient. I would just pay the money. I just, I'm, I, I cannot do anything for myself, literally. Like, I just, I just can't. We're cheap. We're just cheap. <laughs> I, I wish I was because then I would, I'd probably save a lot of money. But I just, I, if left to my own devices, I would not survive. So, like, I just, like, I was not given basic life skills by my parents. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Poop Ugh. and things like that. And I cleaned it all up, and now it's it's pretty and smells good. So Oh, that's good. <laughs> Are you going to be able to get a runner in there soon? Hopefully. We're gonna, we need to put, like, a Craigslist thing out. Yeah. Um, but it's just, like, this is an awful time to move. Like, it's there's so much snow on the ground. Like, yeah. I can't imagine anybody wanting to move in February in this weather. Yeah. So, hopefully, we'll get somebody in there in March. Yeah, that'd probably be the best time to do it. But in the meantime, I'm paying two electric bills, two gas bills. And you'd think that with the other house being empty, that it would be less. Uh, no. Not if you don't want your <laughs> pipes to freeze. Yeah, the bill has been pretty much the same as when we lived there. So No wonder you're wearing like all of your clothing right now. <laughs> I'm like, I am not turning on the heat. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to turn on the heat. So, anyway, um, what do you got for us today, Darsh, for the cases? Yeah, so kind of in keeping with what we decided to do this month for Black History Month, I wanted to do a couple different cases that are a big part of Black history that you didn't learn about in school. So, I actually okay. have two cases, and they're both in Alabama because we're talking about black history and Alabama was a very central hub for the civil rights movement. So, um, and that's where you're from, right? And it is where I'm from. So actually in none of, neither of these stories are just in, in. <laughs> Birmingham, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is actually, I didn't even learn about these things either in school. So that's oh, wow. another really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, this first story does take place in Montgomery and like okay. I said, even though I grew up in Birmingham, just about an hour and a half north of Montgomery, I was well into adulthood when I learned this story. And okay. this story actually took place in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama. And in 1955 in Alabama and in much of the South, the public transportation system was segregated, right? This is not right. telling you anything you don't know yet. So African-Americans were allowed to ride the buses, but they had to sit near the back. And if the bus got full and a white person got on, they were expected to stand up and give their seat to the white rider standing in the aisles if they had to. Okay? Okay. So on March 2nd, a young black woman was returning home on one of the city's buses in the quote-unquote colored section, their words, not mine. While this young woman was riding the bus, it began to get so crowded that eventually people were standing in the aisles. But they weren't just African-Americans standing in the aisles, they were also white riders standing. So the bus driver looks at this young black woman along with three other black people and tells them to stand up and move to the back. And this young woman refused. Okay. It's all sounding pretty familiar, right? Um, Just as a point of reference, this is before Rosa Parks. Well, that's what I was about to say. So this does sound very familiar, right? But this is not the story of Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks' protest occurred on December 1, 1955, a full nine months after this. Okay. Okay. This is the story of Claudette Colvin. Okay. So Claudette, in 1955, was a student at the segregated Booker T. Washington High School in Montgomery. And she often rode the bus to and from school because her family didn't own a car. And that was pretty common. Right. Back then. And Claudette was incredibly ambitious she was a member of the NAACP youth council and she actually aspired to be president one day now just of, for reference of the NAACP or of the country the president of the United States oh wow good for her and now just for reference our first African-American president Barack Obama wasn't even going to be born for another six years and we still haven't had and a woman president woman, <laughs> right Right. Wow. And so, yeah. and, and this young woman is aspiring to be the first African-American president. Yeah. Okay. So she's definitely ambitious. So obviously this was a, yeah. So this is obviously a very big dream for a young black girl in the South. Right. And it also just happened that during that time in school, Claudette was learning about the civil rights movement 
and she was returning from school that day on March 2nd, 1955, when she refused to give up her seat. Okay. Okay. So the previous year, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka was decided, and that is what um, officially said that separate, separate cannot be equal, right? Okay. So that the idea was this would force all of the cities in the South and all around the country to desegregate, but that's not actually what happened. So it was not uncommon for black women at this time to refuse to give up their seats on the bus, even prior to 1954. Mm -hmm. So like when I learned about it in school, it kind of is taught to you that like Rosa Parks was the first one that ever did this and it inspired this movement. right? Right. But that's not true. So Actually, on that day, Claudette was not even the first passenger, the only passenger to refuse to give up her seat. Another woman named Ruth Hamilton was pregnant, and she, according to Claudette, was actually the first to give up her seat. So Mrs. Hamilton says she's not going to give up her seat, and Claudette says, I'm not either. And here's the thing. There was an empty seat across the aisle from where these two young black women were sitting. Mm-hmm. But a white person couldn't sit there because that would mean they're in the same level as a black person. So this this woman, that this white woman that got on the bus and the bus driver commanded these two young black women to get up, this woman had a seat that she could sit in. Yeah. But that would have meant she's on the same, she's on the same plane as black God people. God forbid. Right. Right. So the bus driver then says, okay, well, I'm going to call the police. And here's why we're focusing on Claudette in the story and not Mrs. Hamilton. When the police get there, they convince a black man sitting behind Mrs. Hamilton and Claudette to stand so that Mrs. Hamilton can move one row back. All right. So Mrs. Hamilton does move, but Claudette refuses. She later says that she was thinking about this paper that she had just written for school about local segregation laws and customs that prohibited African-Americans from being treated equally. And specifically, she wrote about how African-Americans were not even allowed to use dressing rooms at department stores. Okay, If they wanted to buy a pair of shoes, they had to take a brown paper bag and draw a diagram of their foot and take it to the store to get the right shoe size. Jeez. All right. So all of this is kind of in the back of her mind. She's learning about the civil rights movement. She's remembering this paper. And when the bus driver commanded Claudette and Mrs. Hamilton to move, Claudette had had enough. And according to another classmate on the bus, Claudette began yelling, it's my constitutional right. And Claudette would later say, history kept me stuck to my seat. I felt the hand of Harriet Tubman pushing down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth pushing down on the other. And I, you know, I, we all, I think, know the story of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, but if you aren't familiar with Sojourner Truth, she was a woman who was born into slavery. She escaped as an adult, and she later went to court to recover her son, who was also born into slavery. She actually became the first black woman to win such a court, court case against a white man. All right? So Claudette has these inspirational women that she's thinking of when she's saying, it's my constitutional right. So... When she refuses, the police grab her and they kick her, kick at her while another police officer knocks her school books out of her lap. Then they grab her by each of, they grab by her by each of her arms and they forcibly remove 15-year-old Claudette Colvin from the bus and she is arrested on March 2nd, 1955 in an act of civil disobedience, All right? What did they charge her with? Civil disobedience? Well, Nope, we'll get there. Okay. (laughs) So on the way to the police station, the police made sexual comments about her body, and they took turns guessing her bra size. Oh, my God. She's 15. She's a kid. And one of the police officers sat in the backseat with her, making her fearful that he was going to sexually assault her, because this is not uncommon at the time. All right? And at the police station, Claudette was charged with disturbing the peace, violating segregation laws, an assault and battery of a police officer. Really? Yep. Claudette was bailed out by her minister who told her that she had brought revolution to Montgomery. Okay? Okay. At her trial, Claudette was represented by Fred Gray, an attorney with the Montgomery Improvement Association, and that was a group that was organizing civil rights actions at the time. Mm -hmm. She was actually going to be convicted on all three charges in juvenile court, But on appeal, 
the charges of disturbing the peace and violating segregation laws were dropped, but her conviction for assaulting a police officer was upheld. In juvenile okay. court. Yep. Well, at least they gave her that. And Good it should, Lord. Yeah. And it should be noted that the classmate that was on the same bus with her that day has repeatedly stated that there obviously was no assault. And, you know, this, this young girl, this classmate testified at Claudette's trial to that fact. But that doesn't matter, right? So in 1956, Fred Gray filed a civil suit challenging bus segregation in Montgomery as unconstitutional. And Claudette was one of four plaintiffs, along with Aurelia Browder, Susie McDonald, and Marie Louise Smith on this, on this case. Claudette Colvin was the star witness. So it's 15 to 16 years old. She's the star witness in this federal civil trial. Can you imagine the amount of stress and pressure? And she was probably being threatened. She was probably being harassed. Oh, Oh, yeah. And the United States District Court for the Middle District of Alabama issued a ruling in favor of the plaintiffs that bus segregation in Montgomery was unconstitutional. And this was eventually affirmed by the Supreme Court on November 13th, 1956. So why don't we know the story of Claudette Colvin? Why are we taught that Rosa Parks was the first act of civil disobedience triggering the Montgomery bus boycott? Okay. Okay. After Claudette was arrested, she was shunned by parts of her own community and she was labeled a troublemaker. Oh my gosh. Right? Between Claudette's arrest and the court case, Rosa Parks had been arrested and Claudette's mother told her to be quiet about what she had done. She said that her mother told her to let Rosa Parks be the symbol because white people weren't going to bother her. According to Claudette, she didn't have, quote, unquote, good hair. She was darker skinned. And whereas Rosa Parks was more fair skinned, which was seen as a symbol of the middle class. Wow. So basically, Rosa Parks was more palatable to white people to get this movement going, to get people on their side. Okay. Claudette was therefore not as appealing a figure as Rosa Parks. And they also felt... The people that organized the Montgomery bus boycott also felt that because Rosa Parks was an adult, she had the maturity to handle being the center of all of this attention and the controversy. Wow. Okay, which that part is kind of fair. But the biggest reason that Claudette's story was not told was because a few months after her arrest, Claudette became pregnant at the age of 15. Oh. So they couldn't let this pregnant teenager be the symbol of the civil rights movement in Alabama. Wow. She, yep. She did. She wasn't raped or anything like that, right? It was. Nope. A, a, okay. Nope. Just an accidental so teenage Claudette, pregnancy. Yeah. Okay. So Claudette gave birth to her son Raymond in March of 1956. And in 1958, they left Montgomery for New York city. Okay. In 1969, Claudette became a nurse's aide in a nursing home in Manhattan, where she worked for 35 years before she retired in 2004. She worked at the same place for 35 years. Is she still alive? Which she is. Whoa. And Claudette mostly maintained a very private life until pretty recently. And she has started to grant some interviews. And in 2005, she told the Montgomery Advertiser, quote, let the people know Rosa Parks was the right person for the boycott but also let them know that the attorneys took four other women to the Supreme Court to challenge the law that led to the end of segregation. And very slowly and long after her due, Claudette's story is gaining recognition. So remember the classmate that was on the bus that day that said Claudette did not assault the police officer? Mm-hmm. Her brother became a Montgomery City Councilman. And in 2017, he arranged for a street in Montgomery to be named after her. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the same year, the Montgomery City Council passed a resolution honoring her, and March 2nd was named Claudette Colvin Day in Montgomery. Oh, that's cool. And in 2019, a Rosa Parks statue was unveiled in Montgomery, along with four granite markers honoring Claudette Colvin and the other plaintiffs in the landmark court case. And in a 2013 interview with Democracy Now!, Claudette said her advice to young people today would be, quote, keep on moving. The struggle is not over. Every day presents a challenge. All the hard work that we have made progress as African-Americans, we do not want to regress. We want to progress. And as and get as much formal education as you can and keep on moving. Don't give up. Hold on to your dreams. That's awesome. And that's the story of Claudette Colvin. And there's actually going to be a special in a couple weeks 
on CNN about Claudette Colvin and why her story did not make the news, why Rosa Parks was the one that we all learn about today. I read an article um, this last week that kind of talked about some of the principles behind this, but essentially it focused on the fact that um, black girls in general, more than any other race, are, I think they called it adultized, or they're treated like adults Mm -hmm. more often than any other race and to their extreme detriment, like both sexually, um, in police altercations, in punishment, and everything. And they, and they yeah. are seen as older than they actually are by every single segment of the population. So mm-hmm. girls like Claudette here, who are a 15-year-old girl, are seen as adults when, they're, when they shouldn't be. It was a very, mm-hmm. very interesting and informative article and just really kind of was very thought-provoking. Um, and yeah. it, it's like, why do we do this? Why do we treat them like sexual beings? Why do we yeah. punish them as we would an adult? And why don't they deserve the same mercy and um, people looking at them as a child because they are children? Why do they have mm-hmm. to be treated differently? And it's it's incredibly thought provoking, just as a topic. Yeah, in that is really interesting, and it's one of those things. And this is the thing about Claudette Colvin is it wasn't. It was people in her own movement. It was people behind the civil rights movement that didn't want to put her forward because she was pregnant at 15. Well, it's not just that. You didn't you say too she had, you know, natural more natural hair, she had darker skin, and that's also something Yeah, she wasn't as appealing, yeah. but the big thing what everybody's going to target mm-hmm. is that she's pregnant, you know? And and that's that's the thing. But then you have the reverse of that, that the Montgomery boy, bus boycott was Martin Luther King's kind of introduction to the country. So if that had happened in March instead of December, mm-hmm. would we have had Martin Luther King and his trajectory in the civil rights movement? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but, it, you know, there, it's just it's sad the way that Claudette Colvin has been treated this whole time. And it's well past due that more people know her story because she was incredibly brave to be a 15 year old to say it's my constitutional right. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So. That is the story of Claudette Colvin, and this next one also takes place in Alabama, and it's a little more understandable why we didn't learn about this because of the timing of it, Mm -hmm. but this next case still had pretty far-reaching legal effects. So this is the story of the last lynching in Alabama, and the reason that you and I probably didn't learn about this story in school is because it took place not in the 50s, like Emmett Till, but in 1981. We didn't really learn about lynching in school. You didn't? Oh. No. We learned about Emmett Till, and we learned about lynching, but... We didn't learn about We did not learn about um, the last lynching in Alabama in 1981, because that was like 10 years before I started school, almost. Wow. So this is, yeah, this is the murder of Michael Donald. Okay. So on March 18th, 1981, at a United Clans of America meeting in Theodore, Alabama, which is a really rural town just outside of Mobile. Okay. They This Klan meeting met on the property of Benny Hayes. Benny Hayes was what they called a Grand Titan, meaning he was like the leader of the Klan of the southern part of Alabama. And he was the second highest ranking Klan member in the entire state of Alabama. So, so they had the main discussion. Like what? The oh, hell? dude, they had they had a hierarchy, and it's like stupid names like Grand Titan and Exalted Cyclops. Like it's stupid, Ugh. but they have rankings, and it's anyway gross. Um, the main topic of discussion at this meeting was the trial of Josephus Anderson, who is a black man charged with murdering a white police officer during a bank robbery up in Birmingham. Okay. Okay. So the trial had been moved down to Mobile which is on the bay, it's on the Gulf Coast Mm -hmm. of Alabama, because of the publicity, all right? So they moved the trial. And the jury for the Anderson trial consisted of 11 black citizens and one white citizen. And the members of Clavern 900, that's what they call their little clubs, Claverns, they were convinced that a mostly black jury would never convict a a black man of killing a white man, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. 
And by the 1980s, it was pretty widely known that law enforcement had informants inside these Klan meetings. I think that's something we talked about with the Birmingham, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in 1963. They had informants back then. So by the 80s, it was pretty well known that they had informants. So oftentimes at these meetings, nobody spoke in terms of like specific plans. But because Benny, who is a 64-year-old grandfather who often used a cane to get around was so incensed over the prospect of that Joseph Josephus Anderson would be acquitted that he yelled and I excuse the language I'm not going to say the actual words but just he yelled if an n-word can get away with killing a white man a white man should be able to get away with killing an n-word okay um keep in mind isn't that what's been going on for centuries now <sighs> Seriously. Yes. yes. What an idiot. Now, keep in mind, the Anderson trial hadn't even concluded yet. Ugh. Okay? The jury was deliberating at that point. Yeah. But another member of the Clavern said, quote, ought to be a damn inward hung if this guy is found not guilty. And Henry Hayes, the son of Benny Hayes, chimed in with, an inward ought to be hung by the neck until, until dead to put them in their place. Okay? Jesus. Yeah. So, after the meeting... Benny got together with his son Henry and another member, 17-year-old James Knowles, who went by the nickname Tiger, to discuss what should happen if Josephus Anderson is indeed acquitted. And even though they had just blatantly yelled their ideas in a meeting full of entire group of people just earlier, for this little side gathering, they decided to speak in kind of more general terms and using like knowing nods and no, things like that. They didn't geez. actually talk about what specific crimes they were going to commit. Mm-hmm. All right. But... They kind of all came to the conclusion that, based on Benny's suggestion, that if Josephus Anderson is acquitted, they should go out and kill a black man and leave his body publicly displayed on Herndon Avenue. Okay. So, again, the book that I got. Domestic terrorism is what this is. Oh, yeah. And so, the book that I got all this information from is called. um, Let me look it up. I should have looked this up earlier. It's called The Lynching, the Epic Courtroom uh, Battle That Brought Down the Klan. It's by Lawrence Lemer. So the book that talks about this talks about Herndon Avenue as if it's like some main thoroughfare mobile. Mm -hmm. But I looked it up on a map and it's like, it looks like a small street. I don't really know. I've never really spent that much time in Mobile. But anyway, Herndon Avenue is like going to play a big part in this story. So that's the only reason I mentioned it. So it's it's possible that it's like, it's only significant because it was known that a bunch of Klan members lived there in properties that were owned by Benny Hayes okay so either way Benny said that nothing could happen until after Friday because he was closing the sales of some of the properties on Herndon and he didn't want something like a public lynching to affect the closing of these deals all right Ugh. that was that was his main concern so March 18th the day of the meeting was a Wednesday And on Friday evening, March 20th, Tiger and Henry were hanging out in Henry's apartment on Herndon Ave with Henry's Henry's wife, Denise, and some friends. And earlier that day, they had driven out with Frank Cox, who was Henry's brother-in-law, to Frank's mother's house to borrow a rope. They told Frank's mother that they needed the rope to tow a car. Mm -hmm. Okay? So this was planned in advance. On the way back to Henry's apartment, Tiger tied the rope into a noose with 13 knots in it which apparently is some kind of clan signature. Okay. So they were just planning to do this, right? It was, we are going to be prepared in case Joseph S. Anderson is acquitted. So they also borrowed a pistol from another Klansman. And at about 10 o'clock that night, Henry turned on the local news and heard that the jury in the Joseph S. Anderson trial was hung. All right. The prosecutor immediately vowed to retry the case, but to Henry Hayes and Tiger Knowles, this was basically akin to acquittal, right? It's not good enough for them. Right. So the two men got in Hayes' car, and they started driving around looking for a black man to pick up. Didn't matter who. They just wanted to find a black man walking around Mobile on a Friday night. Good Lord. So after driving about 20 minutes, they came up on Michael Donald. The two men asked Michael for directions to a popular nightclub, and when Michael leaned closer to give them the directions, Hayes and Knowles pulled the gun on him and ordered him into the back seat. Okay? So they kidnap him. 
as Henry drove them out of Mobile County and into neighboring Baldwin County. Knowles ordered Michael to empty his pockets, worried that he could have a gun or a knife on him because it's a black man. So he, you know, obviously he's armed, even though they're the ones with the gun and the rope. Right. right. So all he had was a wallet with one dollar in it. That's all he had on him. And he took his wallet out of his pocket and he placed it on the floorboard of the car. Henry then mentioned the Atlanta child murders, which were going on at the time and said, a lot of people think the Klan is behind it, but we're not. You know, the same thing could happen to you. What? So Michael then begins pleading for his life, saying they could do whatever they wanted, rob him, beat him, do whatever, but just please don't kill him. Okay? And Michael's 19 years old, so he's terrified. And when they got to a secluded clearing near a garbage dump, they order Michael out of the car. Again, Michael pleads with them not to kill him. And Tiger Knoll says nothing's going to happen to him. He's just a kid. He's not even a man. He's 19. And at that point, Michael starts to fight back. So he ends up knocking the gun out of Knoll's hand, and the gun discharges around when it hits the ground. So Hayes then joins the fight, and he pulls out a razor knife that he uses when he works like laying linoleum, right? So somehow this razor knife fell to the ground, And Michael tries to grab it to defend himself. And it's at this point that both Tiger Knowles and Henry Hayes pried the razor out of Michael's hand and began punching him until he couldn't put up a fight anymore. Thinking that Michael was unconscious, the men relaxed for a moment. But Michael got back up, somehow managed to get the strength. He grabs a nearby branch of a tree and again is trying to defend himself. Mm -hmm. Again... Hayes and Knowles managed to get the tree limb from Michael's hands, and again, they beat him with it until Michael lay on the ground motionless. Okay. Hayes then goes to the trunk of the car, and he gets the rope. And while uh, Tiger Knowles presses Michael's arms down by his side, Hayes puts the noose around his neck. Hayes then puts his foot on Michael's head, leaving a shoe print on his face. And he began pulling the rope as tight as he could. And somehow, somehow, Michael managed to gather the strength to fight back one last time. Tiger Knowles then took over pulling on the rope since Hayes only had one good hand due to a work injury. He had cut up some fingers. While Hayes beat Michael again with a tree limb. Finally, Michael fell to the ground motionless. And Knowles pulled the rope so tight that he broke a bone in Michael's neck, causing him to bleed before he finally strangled to death. And still unsure if Michael was dead or not, Henry Hayes took the razor knife and cut Michael's throat three times. So the two men returned to to Herndon Avenue with Michael's body in the trunk of their car. They park behind some bushes and carry Michael's body to a vacant lot where they hastily strapped Michael's body to a tree. They were looking for a tree that had long branches so that they could properly hang him, but the tree didn't have any branches, so they basically had to, like, strap him to oh my God. the tree. His feet were touching the ground. So it was obvious that this was not how he right. died. Okay. Then they walk across the street to Henry's apartment, where people had gathered to play cards and have a party. And Hayes and Knowles then returned to Henry's house covered in blood. Next, Knowles, Frank Cox, and another clan member named Teddy Kaiser put a three-foot-tall cross wrapped with rags in the trunk of Henry's car. They drove downtown, parked beside the Mobile County Courthouse, drenched the rags in fuel, and set it on fire and returned to Henry Hayes' house. I don't understand the burning cross thing. I, I, I don't get that. It's, it's a... It's, it's a signature to say the clan is here, the clan is active. How do, how do they get to claim a cross? Like, that's just so... That goes back to... So, have you heard of that movie, The Birth of a Nation? Yes. Uh, it was 1915, I think. D.W. Griffith is actually... A sad piece of trivia is it, it was actually the first movie screened in the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, but... That movie tells the purported beginning of the Klan um, right after the Civil War. And in that movie, they, they burn a cross and it kind of became 
this she's thing. Like, oh, hey, this is cool. Just, let's do this. Let's let's make this yeah. our thing. Gross. Yeah. I think that there. I've I think I've seen it described like why they do it described somewhere, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But so they set the cross on fire and they go back to Henry Hayes' apartment. And then Hayes calls his father Benny and tells him there's a black man hanging across the street. He doesn't use black man. Then he called the local TV news station and a country music radio station and anonymously told them that a body was hanging on Herndon Avenue. Okay, so he wanted attention. Mm -hmm. He brought publicity to this. So, let's talk about Michael Donald. Okay. Michael Donald was born in 1961, and he was the youngest of seven children to Beulah Mae Donald. Mm -hmm. Michael was always a reliable kid. He stayed out of trouble. He stayed off the streets. And in 1981, he was training to be a brick mason at a technical college, and he worked part-time inserting, like, you know, those little inserts that go in the newspaper? He, he did that part-time mm-hmm. for the local newspaper, the Mobile Register. Okay. He enjoyed reading comic books, and he liked to play pickup basketball at the local rec center, and he also liked to attend dances that the local rec center had. That was still a thing that happened at the local rec centers in 1981. But every night, he was home by 11 o'clock. That was his curfew. As long as you lived in his mother's house, you had to be home by 11. And he was every night. So he's a good So on kid. March 20th, yeah. On March 20th, 1981, Michael was hanging out at his sister's apartment. And around 11, his niece asked him to go out and buy some cigarettes. And his aunt gave him a dollar to put in his wallet. One dollar. <sighs> Michael left and said he'd be right back. But when he didn't return, they assumed he went to the rec hall to a dance. But... When he still hadn't returned the next morning, Beulah started to get concerned. Mm-hmm. And then the news reports start talking about how a black man had been found hanging from a tree on Herndon Avenue. The victim was still unidentified, but Beulah knew. Yeah. Then her phone rang. A woman said that her husband had saw- spotted a wallet in a dumpster near Herndon Avenue, and when he looked inside, he found Michael's ID. So... After Michael was identified, the Mobile police tried everything they could to avoid calling this a Klan murder. Of course. Okay? They said that Michael was having an affair with a white employee of the Mobile Register. Mm, no. And obviously there's no evidence right. of this. But like in the case of Emmett Till, the mere idea of a black man sleeping with a white woman was enough to get a black man killed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mind you, this is 1981. Right. I was born in 1984 mm-hmm. to a black man and a white woman. I mean... When you tell the story, it sounds like you're talking about the 50s. Nope. Three years before I was born. Not that that, not that, that makes it thought. any better, but it's just, it just shows you how pervasively backwards, behind, awful, terrible, uh, controlled well, we by learn racism. It, racism still. Yeah. And we learn it in school. I mean, I did too, as if... The civil rights movement is in the past. This is three years before I was born. This was the prevailing notion at the time I was born. As in, they fought for it. It was a thing. And they won it. And everything's good. Yep. So. When that theory didn't catch on, that Michael was having an affair and killed by a husband or lover or whatever... Mm -hmm. They started peddling a story from an informant saying that Michael was killed in a drug deal gone wrong, obviously. So it's either a black man sleeping with a white woman or a black man involved with drugs. Okay. Mm -hmm. The murder wasn't racialated at all, you see. So it was just bad guys killing more bad guys. Drug dealers. Get rid of the lot. Gross. With the investigation at a standstill, because the police didn't actually want to investigate this... Michael Donald's funeral was held at the Revelation Missionary Baptist Church. And like Emmett Till, Beulah May wanted her son to have an open casket funeral so that the world could see what they had done. He was unrecognizable. Yeah. They could not, they couldn't put his face back together, the funeral home could have. I mean, yeah. So no one, and I repeat, no one deserves to die like that. I don't care what you've no. done. I don't care how bad you think somebody is. No one deserves that. Yep. And 
It's the tenacity of Beulah Mae Donald and brothers Thomas and Michael Figures that finally got the case moving. So Thomas Figures was the first African-American assistant U.S. attorney in Alabama. Okay, Mm -hmm. And I believe he's still the only African-American assistant U.S. attorney in South Alabama. Mm -hmm. All right. His brother, Michael, was a state senator and a civil rights activist. The DA in in Mobile knew the murder of Michael Donald was Klan related, but he didn't have any way to prove it, mostly because the local police were entirely unwilling to help investigate. He also knew that the majority of the white police officers in Mobile were either A, in the Klan themselves, or B, just plain racist. Right? And there's no way so to they get have the any motivation. FBI involved? He actually asks the FBI to get involved. But when Mobile PD arrests three hippies in this whole drug deal gone wrong story, oh, the FBI, FBI almost closes the case and leaves town. Almost. Okay. Okay. With the assistance of Thomas Figures, who actually becomes a kind of a national figure in the um, hearings for the confirmation of Jeff, Ses- Jeff Sessions to the U.S. attorney because he worked for Jeff Sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the one that says Jeff Sessions called him boy and that Jeff Sessions was fine with the Klan until he learned that they smoked pot, if you remember that from 2016. So with the insistence of Thomas Figures, the Justice Department continued investigating and ultimately they settle on this Clavern 900 in Theodore in 1982 okay little did anyone know as the crowd was gathering around michael donald's body the morning it was found on march 21st 1981 michael figures the state senator and brother of thomas figures snapped a photo of three white men leaning on a car watching the commotion from across the street in the photo was benny hayes henry hayes and tiger Knowles. okay mm-hmm. so that photograph goes into the investigation file and when the u.s attorneys with the justice department start looking at the files to open this up they find that photo two and a half years after the lynching of michael donald henry hayes and tiger Knowles are arrested almost immediately Knowles confesses and agrees to testify against hayes and in exchange Knowles is going to get a federal life sentence for the violation of michael donald's civil rights okay as opposed to a state sentence where he could have gotten the death penalty. Mm-hmm. During his testimony, when he asked, when asked why he and Hayes picked up Michael Donald that night, Knowles responded that they intended to show the strength of the Klan in Alabama. That was his response. Mm. So Henry Hayes is prosecuted on, in state court on charges of kidnapping and murder. But in 1981, those were not capital offenses. What? But... Remember, though, when Tiger Knowles had Michael Donald empty his pockets? Mm-hmm. Prosecutor said that the theft of that $1 in Michael Donald's wallet made it a murder in the commission of a robbery, which is a capital offense. All right. Now okay. we're talking. Yep. So Henry Hayes is convicted of capital murder, but the jury only recommended life in prison. Okay. But if you remember from our episode on Lauren Burke, from back in August of 2019, in Alabama, they used to have something called judicial override, where a judge can actually implement a harsher penalty than what the jury recommends. So usually the judge can say, no, your jury recommendation is too harsh. I'm going to give you a more lenient sentence, but they generally can't recommend a harsher sentence. Okay. Well, in Alabama, they could up until 2017. Okay. Okay. And... Alabama was only actually only one of four states in the country where they could sentence someone to death over the recommendation of the jury. And that's what's hap- that's what happened to Henry Hayes. So, like I said, Tiger Knowles was sentenced to life in federal prison, and he's actually released on parole in 2010. What? Yep. And so like 30-ish years. And after some judicial back and forth, Frank Cox is indicted for being an accomplice. And he is also sentenced to life in prison, state prison. Benny Hayes is indicted for inciting the murder, Mm -hmm. but a judge declared a mistrial when he collapsed in court because he was very unhealthy. And he died of a heart attack before he could be retried in the middle of his second trial. Okay. Mm -hmm. Henry Hayes died by electrocution in 1997. And according to the Associated Press, he's the only known 
KKK member to be executed in the 20th century for the murder of an African-American. Bye. But this is not the end of the story. All right. And this is the part that has like the, the things that we need to talk about today. Okay. The legal ramifications. At the urging of Morris Dees, who was one of the founders of the Southern Poverty Law Center, mm-hmm. Beulah May Donald brought a wrongful death against the United, wrongful death suit against the uh, United Clans of America in federal court in 1984, which was unheard of, right? Yep. The civil suit hinged on Tiger Knoll's testimony in 83 that the only reason they targeted Michael Donald was because he was black and they wanted to show the strength of the Klan in Alabama. So Morris Dees is at that trial. He hears this and he's like, boom. There we go. That's what we got. In 1987, after only a four-hour deliberation, the Klan was found to be liable for the death of Michael Donald and the jury imposed damages of $7 million. And obviously, this judgment bankrupted the United Clans of America. Really? And, yep. And it resulted in the quote-unquote national headquarters, which was like a two-story brick building outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. They had to sell their headquarters for $51,875 with the proceeds going to Beulah May Donald. Okay. So Beulah May Donald ended up basically the owner of the Klan headquarters in Alabama. Unfortunately... Beulah May passed away on September 17, 1988. And in 2006, the city of Mobile renamed Herndon Avenue Michael Donald Avenue. And by successfully arguing that the Klan had agency over its members' actions, this case established a legal precedent that is still used in court cases against hate groups today. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, if you don't know about them, I would encourage you to check them out. It is an amazing civil rights group out of Montgomery, Alabama, started by Morris Dees and one other person. And it's still relatively small, but the work they do, they have this thing called Hate Watch. They cover literally every hate crime in the United States. I encourage you to look them up. They're a wonderful resource on hate speech, hate crimes, and potential um, potential upcoming hate conflicts like that. Um, so I would encourage you to to go check out the Southern Poverty Law Center. And it's incredible and the incredible work that they do but that is the story of michael donald and beulah may donald and that is also actually going to be a cnn um tribute sometime soon too oh. with claudette colvin so i was actually i wanted to do these cases and then i saw that cnn was was about to do specials on them and i was like yes this is perfect timing i gotta write this down so anyway so those are the stories of claudette colvin and michael donald very very sad story mm-hmm. for the, the last one and, yeah, and one that awful. you don't think would be an issue and it's interesting when you said that it bankrupt them with seven million dollars but the thing is they're still out there they're still moving around they're still doing things they're still functioning so they are but they're not they don't have the organized fashion that they they have to meet in like backwoods secret locations they can't just hold meetings they can't rent a building that says united clan of america anymore and it's all because of the way that this legal precedent went down well i think it's great that that precedent was set and that that technically bankrupted them i think that there still needs to be more done to end them and the sorts of activities oh yeah because i feel like and this was Go ahead. It just made it more underground. It didn't end it. It just made them hide it, which is even well, worse. And, and yeah, and United Clan of America was only one formal organization. There's all kinds of clan organizations. They're basically like little LLCs around the country. The United Clans of America was just one. Yeah. But it set the precedent that you can sue them and hold them, rely, hold these hate groups reliable for the actions of their members. And like I said, Betty Hayes was indicted for inciting this murder, and he died during his his second trial. But you know, in all likelihood, he he very well could have been a could have been found guilty of that. And I mean, that's another legal precedent, you know, that that we could hold people accountable for their words, not because it's a violation of the First Amendment rights, but because they incited violence upon other people, yeah. and they knew that their actions would have those consequences. Yeah. And I think that's something important that. We need to talk about today. Yeah. 
it definitely speaks volumes um, when you consider what's going on in the world today. Mm-hmm. Very interesting cases, and I hadn't heard of either one, so it definitely yeah. they're very impactful. Yep. There's a lot of there's a lot of stories out there like this that that never become part of the mainstream civil rights movement, and I mean, sad to say, I don't know them all. You know, I'm still learning them too, and but. I think it's important that we talk about them, even though they're hard, just like last episode with Emmett Till. That's hard. That's hard to talk about. It is. This Michael Donald case is incredibly hard to talk about because it happened three years before I was born. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, it's, this is recent. This is my generation, Mm -hmm. you know, that, but we have to talk about it because otherwise history repeats itself and we have to educate ourselves on this. Yeah. What is that saying? Those who don't learn and know their history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Anything else to add on this one? This very sad topic. Yeah. All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you would please rate, review, and subscribe, that really helps us out tremendously. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So we will post pictures and show notes and, and all the references and all that stuff. And um, I think just recently on the Twitter, I retweeted the CNN stories about Claudette and Michael Donald. And that has the information on when they're going to air on CNN. So you can check that out too. Are there a lot of pictures of... Mr. Mc- Mr. Donald? No, there's not. There's pictures of Beulah May and his sisters. His sisters were at the renaming of the Herndon Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find those recent pictures, but there's not, there's not very many pictures of Michael Donald at all, unfortunately. That's sad. Um, yeah, and very what sad. about Claudette? Are there pictures of her? There are a lot of pictures of Claudette. There's pictures of her from when she was younger. There's also more recent pictures of her because she's still living in New York. Okay, great. Well, we'll throw some of those up onto the social media. And please join us again next week. (laughs) Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Night, podcast peeps.